turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 1 this morning. Joshua chapter 1. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just wave to them, and they will be happy to get a Bible into your hands. And, um, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want that Bible to be a gift from the Lord to you today. We want everybody to own a Bible, to read a Bible, to know the Bible. And so please uh, enjoy that gift from the Lord. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Excuse me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead, and now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosper, prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage in your eternal word that is going to outlive all of the heavens and all of the earth. We have tested your word, its truthfulness, its veracity, Lord, in the short span of our lives and discovered that your truth has always risen to the top It has always proved itself, not only within the book, but in the nitty-gritty of human life and the greatness of the needs of our life to always be faithful and always be true. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, fresh and anew right now, and give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice speak to us through your word. And we ask these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, the Lord repeats a phrase three times. Uh, Slight variations, but essentially the same thing. In verse 6, he declares to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. In verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. And then again in verse 9, be strong and of good courage. Now, when the Lord uh, says anything uh, to me once, he's got my attention. I'm thankful to hear his voice. I'm thankful to have his word. He doesn't have to repeat himself in order to get my attention, to get your attention. But when he repeats himself and says the same thing over and over again three times, then he really has my attention. Because I know he's not repeating himself for his sake. He's repeating himself for my sake and for your sake. Sometimes uh, somebody will say something to us. Even the Lord will speak something to us through his word. And whether through familiarity with his word or whatever's going on in our life and preoccupation or whatever we're in the middle of, 
uh, it hits us, it goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't really catch. And the Lord knows that sometimes it's only the second or third time that we stop and we go, wait a second, God's telling me that now a second time. He's telling me that now a third time. Now he has my attention. And God knows that this message that he had for Joshua, and it's the same message that he has for us, that this declaration to be strong and of good courage isn't something that we can afford to miss. Uh, but it's something that is very important for our lives, so he repeats himself. This passage in Joshua chapter 1 is a classic New Year's uh, passage. And the reason it's a classic New Year passage is that each New Year's Day we are dominated by two things all at once. Uh, We have the dual sense that we're leaving one thing behind, that is the old year. And yet at the same time, we're also embarking on something altogether new, something that is, humanly speaking, unknown to us, this new year that we're heading out into. And this is exactly the kind of atmosphere uh, and situation that Joshua and the children of Israel were facing in Joshua chapter 1. In terms of their immediate past, Moses has died after having led them on God's behalf for over 40 years, having led them out of the bondage of Egypt through the 40 long years of wandering through the wilderness. And it would be almost impossible to describe the magnitude of the effect of this loss of Moses upon the children of Israel at this uh, time. Moses is one of the most important men in all of human history. Not just religious history, not just biblical history. Moses is one of the handful of most important human beings to ever live in all of human history. Because while Abraham was the biological father of the nation of Israel, while God had chosen him to provide the physical bloodline for the Jews and ultimately the bloodline for the promised Messiah, Moses was Israel's conscience as the giver of the law. He was the one that God used to fashion the nation of Israel morally and spiritually, to make them spiritually and morally unique in human history. And for 40 years, he had been to them the one who God had used to bring them out of Egypt, to give them the law. He was their judge. He was their commander-in-chief. He was the one that held everything together through thick and thin, all of the highs and the lows of the 40 years in the wilderness. He was the man who always unfailingly heard from God and had always made the right decision for the children of Israel. And because of that and his departure into heaven, their feeling of vulnerability they hadn't felt in their lives for 40 years. As long as Moses was there, everything was okay. But now Moses isn't there anymore. Concerning their present, God had appointed a new leader in Moses' place, a man by the name of Joshua. Joshua's a godly man, and he's a tremendous man. But they don't have the same kind of history with Joshua yet that they had with Moses. One day they will, but they don't yet have that kind of history. And so it is a time of transition, both for Joshua and for the children of Israel. If you've ever been a part of a church where there is a change in the pastor of a church, uh, then you have a sense for, uh, in a small way, for what the nation of Israel was feeling at this time, with this change that was occurring within their uh, leadership. Sometimes you'll have a new pastor who's taking the place of an old pastor who is is perhaps beloved and is now needing to retire or needing to move someplace else or whatever the circumstances might be. And when that change is occurring in that particular 
place in that church, there's a, 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 a sense of a little bit of uneasiness. We know who the other person was. We know what kind of a man that man was. We knew what his priorities were, what his emphases were. And yet here is a new man, and, and surely they wouldn't put in a new man now who wasn't everything that the old man uh, wasn't, and, and surely he's capable and all. But they, you don't know exactly what he's going to be. What kind of changes is the new man going to bring in? And in those kind of, uh, there's always this feeling of transition, even if it goes absolutely smoothly or seamlessly. And Joshua, of course, was Moses' assistant. But lots of assistants have failed when the time came for them to move from being an assistant to be now taking the highest place of leadership. And so there's a little bit of anxiousness within the camp. And concerning their future, all they know is that great hardship awaits them in the future. They've been called by God now to take possession of the promised land, to take one of the greatest steps of faith ever asked by God of his people up to this point in their history. And they've never been in this place before. They don't know exactly what's going to be involved. All they know is that there's going to be great battles ahead against seven nations, against great armies, against walled cities. And so at this moment, Everything about their past and their present and their future came together in such a way that God knew that their natural inclination would be to be filled with fear and to be filled with dismay. And thus his threefold call to be strong and of good courage, beginning with Joshua himself. We live in a world today that is in the middle of Great change, monumental change is occurring on every level in the world that we live in today. In our own nation, the social, the moral, the spiritual cornerstones of our nation, the ancient landmarks, the foundation of our nation up to this time, Morality and spirituality and, and the, the wonderful force that those things exerted upon society and made a society that was strong and gave people a sense of, of reliability and safety and, and uh, a sense of, of strength here that is a part of the nation, that there is better days ahead for this nation. And people felt that way because these cornerstones, these ancient landmarks, this foundation was largely founded upon God's Word. And yet those things are being casually uh, dismissed today, thrown away. Uh, determined to be passé. We're smarter now. We're more brilliant now. We're more educated now. We're more sophisticated now. It's a new age. We're smarter than God, if there is even a God. We are God. And this whole casual throwing away and uh, dismantling the foundation and the results are catastrophic and the worst is even yet to come. And I haven't, my desire this morning is not to depress anyone, but I'm not telling you something you don't know as a spirit-filled Christian. I'm not telling you something that you don't feel every day, that you watch the news, you see the changes that are happening. You know, as above all people, how important such a foundation is and the disaster that it will be to dismantle that foundation and try and replace it with something else. And as a result, the world that we live in today is never more unstable or more dangerous as uh, today than it has been, certainly at any time in my lifetime. I can only speak to my lifetime all of the polling data that they do today asking people, not Christians, not just asking anyone who lives in America, asking them about 
what they feel about the direction of the country, what kind of confidence do they have about the future. And all of the polling indicates that the overwhelming majority, not a slight majority, an overwhelming majority of people are very concerned about the future of the nation and, and ha- believe that we are going in the wrong direction. And yet at the same time that the average person like you and me, blue-collar, regular people now that don't have any sense, we're not smart in the eyes of so many, at the very time that the broad masses are feeling all of this, then so much of the leadership, I mean with a, a stunning arrogance, the majority of our leaders in this nation, and not just in our nation, but in so much of the world today, are tearing down all manner of walls and that they now consider to be obsolete and useless. Moral walls, spiritual walls. There is a very wise man who gave this counsel to human beings many years ago about tearing down walls. He said, before you tear down a wall, you might want to find out why it got built in the first place. Why did people feel the necessity to build that wall? What protection does it offer against danger and demons that they knew it provided? And that's why they made the decisions that they made, that they founded things the way that they founded But today, there isn't that kind of thinking that's going on. And it's arrogance and it's pride and it's dangerous. And in this season of great transition and change, many people, like never before again in my lifetime, are falling into a lifestyle of fear and dismay. And as Christians, we can be every bit as prone to it and maybe even more prone to it because the Spirit of God is inside of us. We can never be content to bury our head in sand. We see things more clearly than anybody else sees. We understand implications of decisions like nobody else does because God lives inside of us. And so fear is gripping our world. And it's gripping our nation. And thus this morning I want to consider this great word in our passage that's repeated three times. And it's the word courage. What is courage? In our passage in the Hebrew, the word means to be stout with the idea of being solid and strong. When you put a football team together and you've got somebody that's stout, I mean, they're built low to the ground, they're wide, you don't make a wide receiver out of them. You put them in the line where it takes a world of effort to move a person like that just three inches in one direction or the other. It speaks of being stout, solid, strong, alert, bold, hard, hard in the sense of being immovable. The word literally means to show oneself strong. A person can be strong on the inside, but once it leaves the inside and that strength is demonstrated or exhibited in action, that strength will always take the form of courage. A person can be a courageous person, but no one will know they're courageous unless that strength finds expression somewhere. And when strength is expressed in the right way in a human life, it is always expressed in courage. This word courage means to act bravely. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? The word brave. We don't hear that much about it. Brave. That man is brave. That woman is brave. Is getting buried under fear and dismay. And just the word courageous, it inspires something within us. When I was a young boy, they had two libraries in Napa, California. 
And one was an adult library and one was a children's library. When I was very young, all the books were in one library, the Goodman Library. And then it broke up. They got so many books that it broke up into two sections. You had the children's library and then you had the adult library in two different locations. I read every book in both of those libraries that told the story of every single Congressional Medal of Honor winner up to that time in my life. You talk about bravery. You talk about stories. You're talking about the brave in a context of brave, what they did to merit that award in history. And it did something good in in my life to read about that, to read about courage and bravery. I read every book in those libraries on the Texas Rangers. And anything else, it was a search for courage. It was a search for exposure to that kind of a thing because it has a great effect on people's lives. And we want our lives to have that kind of effect. To act bravely, it's to rise up in the face of great challenges even despite our own fears, and to do the courageous thing anyway, to possess a great bravery that is greater than any fear caused by our circumstance in life. It doesn't mean that the brave person doesn't experience fear. They do experience fear. But somehow, from somewhere in their life, they possess a cause for bravery, a cause for courage, a cause for boldness, a cause for resolution that's even greater than the cause and source of their fear. The Bible teaches that courage is a necessity for the child of God in this world. Every one of us, it requires courage to live for God, to live the Christian life, to seriously commit to living the Christianity that we see in Jesus in the Gospels, that we read described in the epistles, is to realize this is something that's going to take enormous courage to be able to live. I'm not talking about American Christianity or social Christianity or all of the things that we've encumbered Christianity with from our culture. Like every other culture in the world, we're not unique in that way. But when you get down to what Christianity really is, where we don't as a culture or as a nation or even as a church ignore these verses because those aren't pleasant to us as citizens of this country, but we emphasize these others. And ultimately, where all of this ends in human history is we find ourselves running to the ark of God's word and saying to God, God, I don't want to know in the light of what I'm in the middle of, what you've called me to do, what you've called me to be in the middle of what you have called me to do. I know none of these other definitions of Christianity are going to hold up. I want a Bible Christianity. And when you go to the Bible and we say, what has Christ really called us to? That we don't take and explain away through 50-minute sermons. But this is what he calls us to do. It is to realize immediately this is not a life for the timid. This is a life that requires strength. This is a life that requires courage and requires bravery. The Apostle Paul wrote of the necessity of courage in the Christian life. He wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Paul wrote to not only to a church concerning bravery, but also to an individual Christian, his protege, by the name of Timothy. And in his first letter to Timothy, he wrote, Fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were called and have professed the good confession in the presence of my uh, of many witnesses. He wrote in his second epistle to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And it's so much of the New Testament imagery is military imagery. It speaks of bravery. It speaks of hardship. It speaks of courage. 
It speaks of nobility. It speaks of opportunity to do something great and to be something great. The writer of the book of Hebrews calls on us to consider the courage of the Old Testament saints in order to encourage our courage. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Courage was required of all of them, through who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire. This is the dream of a young boy. This is the dream of a child to live, a child of God to live that kind of a life for the glory of God. Quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens, and on and on he goes to describe the courage of those Old Testament saints. And Jesus taught, he said, if the world hates you, Not just Phil Robertson, but you. They just haven't gotten to you yet. If you don't think they would do to you what they did to him in spades when they get the chance, after they've done lopping off everybody else's head, then you're living in a dream world. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. And yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. Oh, this is authentic Christianity. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. And it takes courage to choose such a life and to faithfully live such a life. I want you to notice in our passage the two great enemies of courage that are listed here, two things that will keep us from living a courageous life, and they're listed in verse 9, and the first is fear. We are not to allow ourselves to be driven by or dominated by fear or panic. And this fear that God speaks about in this passage of Scripture and in similar passages throughout the Bible, it's not talking about the fear of the Lord. That's a good thing. It's not talking about the fear of disobeying God's Word. That's a part of the fear of the Lord, and that's a good thing. It's not talking about the fear of a a healthy fear in the child of, uh, of God, a legitimate fear that we experience when we're in danger. Danger comes into our life in a moment's uh, notice, and then that fear causes us to exercise wisdom and caution for our own protection and for the protection of our loved ones. Say someone is uh, trying to break into our home in order to do harm. And immediately we're gripped by fear, and that fear can be a good fear. It causes us to say, okay, now what is the wise thing to do, the protective thing to do in this situation? What's being condemned here and what we're being warned against here speaks of a fear that occurs because of unbelief, a fear that occurs because of a distrust of God, of this kind of fear The Apostle Paul wrote again to Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. God never gives a spirit of fear. He never operates in that kind of fear to move us or to motivate us as his people. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. The Apostle John wrote concerning fear, In 1 John 4.18, he said, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, talking about God's love for us, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. 
Sometimes we think the greatest thing that we can do in terms of our life to uh, eliminate fear from our life is to take and resolve whatever experience or circumstance that we're in that's causing fear. That will be a temporary solution to fear because no matter what happens this side of heaven, a new circumstance, a new fear uh, evoking circumstance will arise in the place of the old one. John says, you want to inoculate yourself related to fear? Here's how to inoculate yourself. Grow in your knowledge of how much this God you love loves you. And as you grow in your knowledge of how much he loves you, how perfect that love is, it will cause every fear to be washed away under the weight and the water and the cleansing of that. None of us would fear, not for a moment, if we had a full understanding of how great God's love is for us. Well, one day we'll know it in its fullness when we're in heaven and we see him face to face. But now we're growing in it. God loves us so much that there isn't a cause for fear. And that's important to realize as we deal with fear in life as a Christian. The second thing that he warns us against that will rob us of being strong and of being of good courage is this thing called dismay that he speaks of in verse 9. And the Hebrew word that's used for dismay is an interesting one. It means to be shattered. It means to be broken. It means to be prostrated. And this speaks of allowing the um, condition of the world or some circumstance in our lives to break us to pieces or to wipe us out. That's what dismay is. And God knows that each of us are going to face in life things that will tempt us to fall into fear and dismay, or else he wouldn't have warned Joshua against it, and he wouldn't warn us against it as well. Now, one of the fascinating things about this passage in Joshua chapter 1 is the Lord doesn't just tell Joshua not to fear and to be of good courage in a vacuum. He doesn't just give him words to be just like plaque fodder that he can put up on uh, the wall of his home. God proceeds to, in this passage, to give Joshua the reasons that both he and Uh, No child of God needs to fear. He gives them the, the reason why we can be courageous and why we can be strong in this life, no matter what we're facing. It's interesting, the root word for encouragement is the word courage. We use the word encouragement a lot more than we use courage these days in my, uh, in my experience. But courage is the central word of encouragement. It's the root word of encouragement. You add E-N to a word, and when we do that in the English language, it means to put in. And so to encourage someone is to put in courage. So the passage includes encouragements. God is giving reasons for us to be courageous and, and not, and to be strong and 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 to encouragements to build that courage within us. When we sit down and we talk with someone who's in the middle of a mess in their life, and they're wavering, they're buckling, this is a huge thing that they're facing in their life, and we sit down, and what do we endeavor to do? We endeavor to encourage them. We endeavor to put courage inside of them. That's what encouragement is. And God does that in this passage. He just doesn't come along and say, listen, be strong and of good courage. And by the way, there's no reason to be that, um, but be on your way. And his encouragements here, I mean, they are just so perfectly chosen. God is greater than every need in our lives. And God's encouragements are greater than every single cause for fear. 
that we will ever face in this life. You want to know what those encouragements are? The first one is found there in verse 3 when he told Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. And what this meant to Joshua and to the children of Israel was enormous. When God spoke of the promised land and giving it to the children of Israel, he speaks of it as already past tense, have been given to them. It was theirs. They had legal title to it. And they would discover it to be true that it was there as they marched in and took possession of it. In other words, this is God's way of saying that he would keep every promise that he had made to them. God says, I've made a promise for you, the greatest thing that you're going to accomplish in the history of your nation up to this point. You are going to possess that land. That's a tremendous promise that he gave. And it was God's way of saying, I'll keep that promise that I have made to you. All you need to do is just act like it's true and take possession of the land. Now, as Christians, our promised land is entirely different. It's not geographic. It's not a nation on the face of the earth or a piece of land on the face of the earth. Our promised land is every promise from the Bible that is ours because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we are talking about hundreds and thousands of promises as a result. Every promise from God's word to us in the whole Bible, it already belongs to us. And God wants us to know that and that In this coming year, every single promise that God has made to us, he is going to wonderfully and perfectly keep. Paul wrote of it, and he said in 2 Corinthians, for all of the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yea and amen. Amen means so be it. That's the truth. And these promises of God in him are yea and amen to the glory of God through us. And that's intended to produce tremendous courage in our lives. Every single one of the hundreds and thousands of promises that are in God's word to us as Christians, God is going to be faithful to keep every single One of them. I don't know what 2013 was like for you. Hardest year of my life. Hardest year of my life. And I've been through some really hard years in my life. I thought you get up here 58 years old, pushing 59, been serving the Lord paid a lot of dues through the years and everything, I thought, well, maybe maybe we'll coast into heaven a little bit. Yes, yeah, stay diligent, stay on top of things and all, but I mean, in terms of really getting whacked, maybe that's just, I'll just tell the stories from way back when. And then 2013 hit. And you could take all of the years that, of things that I went through, bind them up together, multiply them times 10, and that was my 2013. And I'm not even talking about the cancer. The only reason I stand before you today is the grace of God. And that He was faithful to every single promise in this year. Every single one. And I learned things from him and about him I would have learned no other way. And I know that many of you could make the same testimony, maybe not about the difficulty of 2013, but some chapter or season in your life where you look and you looked at that 
season and got to the other side of it, marvel at your survival, and yet you look at it and say, through all of it, God was faithful. And it's interesting, Joshua, when he comes to the end of his life, this is the beginning of his ministry. This is the promise that's given to him. And when he's an old man and he's ready to go into heaven, he gathers all of the children of Israel together, and here's what he wanted to say to them. Joshua chapter 23, he said, Behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you, and not one word of them has failed. And that will be the testimony of every single one of us the moment before we die. And it will be our testimony for eternity in the heaven that we are headed to. The second encouragement to Joshua's courage and ours is found in verse 5. When he promised Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And when God speaks to Moses of his presence, or he speaks to Joshua of his presence, and when God speaks to us of his presence in our life, it isn't the idea that, yeah, I know you're heading into 2014, and I'm going to be a very, very diligent student of everything that's going to happen to you. I will watch all of it. I will know all of it so that when you pray related to the situation, I'll be up to date on it. But I'll be sitting on my hands as it relates to your life. That's not the way that the Bible works or the Jewish understanding of the Scriptures. What God is promising Joshua here and promising us is to be an active for good presence in Joshua's life. In other words, whatever he is saying to Joshua, whatever I have to do in order to keep my promises to you, in order to make your way prosperous, and for you to have good success in my call upon your life, I will do that. Whatever miracle you need, whatever word of encouragement you will need, whatever wisdom you will need, whatever you will need, I will be there to give that to you. And God's promise of his favorable presence in our lives is the absolute guarantee of success in our lives as Christians. And it's intended to produce courage. And that's why Jesus, following his resurrection from the dead, and immediately before his ascension into heaven, when he spoke with the disciples, these men and women that he loved so much, as he gave them the great commission in chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel, he then declared to them, intended as the same comfort upon their hearts, indeed a greater comfort upon their hearts than even what God spoke to Joshua, the Lord spoke to them and to us, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Not as a spectator, but as an active participant in our lives. What a marvelous thing it was to have been Jesus' disciples 2,000 years ago, to walk with him in his public ministry for those three and a half years and what it's intended to teach us. There was no situation that those 12 went into with Jesus that Jesus was not sufficient for, that he wasn't the master of every single situation whether a storm or demon-possessed people or sickness or death or the feeding of 5,000 or wisdom or whatever. Whatever their need was, he was present to meet that need. But he promised in his departure into heaven that he would continue to be that in each of our lives in the person of his Holy Spirit. As Christians, we're not going into 2014 alone. 
We're going into 2014 with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they are going to be active for our good every moment and every day of the year. And it's intended to produce courage in us. As Paul wrote to the Romans, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, and he is, then who can be against us? And the idea is successfully. No one can successfully be against us. Third, I want you to notice by way of encouragement to strength and courage God's promise in verse 5 to Joshua and to us, I will not leave you or forsake you. The writer of the book of Hebrews records this as well for us in the New Testament. The Lord speaks to a man. He speaks to us and the individual of our heart right where we're sitting or where we're standing today. And the Lord says, I will not leave you. And that phrase literally in the Hebrew means, I will not drop you. I will not drop you. I was watching something on television Recently, there was a scene in which a father and a mother took turns holding their brand new baby. It was a beautiful picture. How vulnerable a little baby is in the arms of his or her parents. The worst thing that could happen to a baby is that someone would drop the baby. But when God looks at you and I, whatever our title, however old we are, whatever our um, accomplishments in life, whatever our wealth, whatever titles have been attached to our life and all, when he looks at your life and he looks at my life and the grand scheme of life, so much of it beyond our control and way beyond our resources, he realizes every single one of us is as vulnerable as a baby. We're fragile. We're in need of protection. And God makes that promise to Joshua. And he makes the same promise to us. And it is God's way of saying, I will not fail you. I will not fail you. And sometimes it's just good to stop, maybe in the fear of our own heart this morning, and to just stop and to say that, repeat it to yourself in your heart, God will not fail me. He has promised me, and his reputation is bound up in keeping his promises to me. The Lord said, I will not forsake you. Literally, I won't abandon you. I won't leave you. We live in a country and in a world that has so nurtured selfishness. And the casualties of this to the neglect of self-sacrifice and loving others more than myself are so widespread now and they're so um, systemic now that we don't even recognize the consequences that it's had on society around us. One of the biggest things that takes a hit when people start to be encouraged in their selfishness and it's nurtured everywhere they go in life One of the great casualties is relationships. And so meaningful relationships that would have survived decades ago in this country, they don't survive because we love ourselves so much that we're willing to throw away what we don't even know is valuable at a moment in time until we live in a nation that has been, is filled with so many people who have been so deeply hurt by abandonment from kids all the way up 
the circumstances, whether married or whether father, son, parent, child, children, what? It's epidemic all around us. And God comes in and he says, I'll never do that to you. No matter what happens in 2014, no matter what your need is, no matter how ugly the fall is on your face, in order to learn something bigger in life, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. And that's a cause for great courage in heading into the new year. There are a couple of other things that I'd like to spend a moment on that we can do to protect and to develop courage in our lives as Christians. And I think the first thing that we need to do is to refuse to accept a spirit of fear as a lifestyle. And it happens easily, the days in which we live. Fear is a dangerous thing, and we have to really wake up to how dangerous it is. Fear can take a life and destroy a life and break a life as thoroughly and as effectively as any other sin in life. It's a dangerous thing. And it's not something to get comfortable with or just to look and say, all right, I've settled now into a lifestyle of fear. I guess this is just the way that I'll live for the rest of of my life. It will take control of your life and it will destroy your life if it isn't recognized and it isn't resisted. And again, this world that we live in, it is so dominated by fear and yet God has called us to something better than that. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And so the light needs to go on and say, wait a second, a long time ago I went from a place of being fearful every once in a while to being fearful occasionally to being fearful regularly to now living a life of constant fear about the world around me and to stop this morning and say that's enough of that by the Spirit of God. God hasn't given that to me, and I'm not going to waste my life in that place, and I'm going to recognize it for the dangerous thing that it is, and I'm going to choose to turn from it today. I think that second, it's important for us to be very strict about how much exposure we allow ourselves to things in life that produce fear and dismay in our lives. The newscasts that we watch or how much news we process about the whole wide world. You and I were meant for a garden. We were created in a garden. We weren't made for this. We weren't made to know everything we know. We weren't made to know about every international problem in the world, national problem in the world, every single crime that's committed in the world, every disaster in the world, every mudslide in the world, every, 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 every in the world, and the way that we absorb. Nobody can withstand it. Nobody can absorb that. Nobody has those margins, and yet it's accessible to us. the old days when you used to read newspapers, some of you still do. Most the news now is new media. But you read the newspaper and you'd read the newspaper and, and sit at the breakfast table in the morning and here's this crime that occurred over here and then this person was assaulted over here and this person was... Uh, 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 defiled over here, and then, you know, six people were shot dead by a sniper over here, and there was a landslide in this part of the world, and 3,000 were buried, or a quarter of a million were buried, and then we have the capacity to, to sit and to read all of this information, and then finish our bowl of cornflakes. Because somehow... We are able to take and detach ourselves emotionally from what it is that we're reading because there's the recognition even within us that no one can take and put ourselves in the shoes of every single person that we're reading about in one edition of a newspaper and not be overwhelmed. Nobody can process that mentally or emotionally. It would break us. 
And then today, so much news, so much of the news is bad. And I'm not saying you can't watch the news. I wouldn't tell you what you could or couldn't do in terms of liberties. But if it's got us living a life of fear, and every time we get up from the computer terminal or put the remote down on the television or put down this magazine or this piece of literature or this newsletter or hang around this person, we walk away and say, why am I so fearful and filled with a spirit of fear? And the realization that we will need to become self-monitoring in this way or we will lose our strength and we will lose our courage. No one can know all of those things. We're not made to process all of those things. And most of what we're seeing today and so much within the culture, not all of it, but if you think you turn on the news and you're getting straight news without an agenda, please, I don't care if it's CB, uh, PBS. I don't care if it's Fox News. I don't care if it's CNN. It's not just news anymore. These are businesses. This is entertainment. This is money. This is about getting an audience, keeping an audience, enlarging an audience. And just like with the stock market, they say the two great emotions, the two great things that drive the stock market is fear and greed. These are powerful forces in a human life. And so much of what is going on around us is in order to afflict us with fear, in order to keep us watching, or in order to sell us something. You watch, I was watching the television ESPN last night, so I didn't get to see the playoff games. And uh, so I wanted to see some of the highlights on things. And so they had one thing. There's about four ESPN stations. So they had this thing going on over here. And so I went over to one. I wanted to see football highlights. There's no other sport right now than football. What are they thinking showing other things? So I went over, and there, there it is, and I click onto it. And, you know, the, the, the equivalent of what I'm – the commercials that I'm watching is – one is like for a – uh, hip and knee replacement. Uh, the next one is for like a knee brace. The other one is for like clapping your hands so the TV light works. You don't have to walk across the room. Or if you fall down, the alarm will go off and someone will... They, they put all, and, and you listen to how the whole thing is being done and, it, and it, it is the instilling of fear in order to sell something. And sometimes it's not a product. Sometimes it's an agenda. I have to be aware of it. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, and he doesn't want us to be dominated by it or influenced by it. And third and finally, we need to develop a disciplined mind concerning sinful fear. Paul wrote and he said, For though we walk in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And it speaks about a disciplined mind. A mind that doesn't just allow anything and everything that comes from the world to come into it and establish a home there. And a disciplined mind is a mind that tests every thought, every emotion, everything that's happening, and it comes into my mind and I test it by the Word of God. And if it does not match the Word of God, then it is exalting itself against the knowledge of God. It is exalting itself against what I know to be true about God and true about my life. And then I'm to take that thought captive and to throw it out of my mind and to say, Lord, this thought... This temptation, this emotion is unworthy of one of your children. 
This is endeavoring to produce fear inside of me. I know that you haven't given me a spirit of fear. And so because this is unworthy of one who's a child of God, I give this to you. Take it away from me. I'm going to choose strength and courage in the power of your Holy Spirit. And that's how a disciplined mind works. And the importance of directing it, not just towards temptations like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the obvious things that can derail our life so quickly, but also toward fear. And as we do that over and over and over again as necessary, concerning the thought of fear, whatever it might be, we'll develop a disciplined mind until finally we're recognizing fear in all of its sources. It's not getting a foothold. We're grabbing it and putting it out. And we may need to do that 60 times an hour for where a person is today in their life. But then it'll just be 30 times an hour tomorrow. And then it'll be just one time an hour four days from now. And then it'll just be every once in a while two or three weeks ago from now because the mind is becoming disciplined about something that is dangerous to it and God's call upon our lives. And we need to be and must be as ruthless with sinful fear as we are with any other sin in our life. And then fourth, I told you the other one was the last one because I have a bad memory. Fourth in verses 7 and 8, the importance in terms of nurturing courage is to make the Bible, the Word of God, the single greatest influence in our lives. He says to Joshua, obey it. Hardly anything produces a greater courage and sense of strength in our life than when some difficult trial or circumstance arises in our life, and when it happens, and I'm tempted to be fearful, I, I can go immediately to God, realizing that I am right with Him right now. One of the most miserable places to be in life is to have fear or fear-producing circumstance hit us in our life and to know that we are not close to God. We're not obedient to Him and to His Word. And it robs us of courage in the face of fear. The importance of obedience is so... The, the, the importance of it, it goes out in all kinds of different directions. And He told Joshua and us that the Word of God needs to fill our mouths and that we need to meditate on it day and night until it dominates everything about our lives. It's the thing that we're thinking about all of the time. And as it becomes, the Bible becomes the dominant influence in our life, the single greatest influence in our life, then fear and dismay will find it very hard to get established or to stay established in our lives. The importance of the Word of God. You say, blah, 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 blah. That's what you preachers say. The Word of God, the Word of God, daily devotional time. And then, but it's not just a daily devotional time in the Word. So the Word washes us and we grow in our relationship with the Lord. That's just a starting point. Then turning to the Word of God and studying the Word of God about the situations that we're addressing in life, the needs within our life. As Christians, we're to know this Bible inside and out, back and forth. And I see all around this movement away from the Word of God and Christians knowing it from one end to the other. It's why on Sunday night we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And that's the truth. I've been walking with the Lord since 1980. I've read the Bible so many times. The Bible means more to me now than ever. I need it more than ever to get through a day than I ever have in my whole life. And it's where we're headed. And it's going to be a case of I'm either going to make this book the dominant influence in my life or I'm going to fall prey to fear and dismay. That's the world that we're heading into. That's the generation and the season that God has called us to live for him and to make a difference for him. And so as Christians, we're to walk in strength and courage, not in fear and dismay. And here he tells us how to do it. 
I could take and do a sermon. I know I'm at the hour now and I'm well past. I apologize a little bit. But there are some things and there are some messages that they're not just bullet points to bring something we already know to our remembrance. But where you really have to stop and say, okay, why can't I live a life that's marked by strength and courage? And sometimes it takes a little time to lay that out in a way that makes it useful for us today or in March or in August or in November when we will need it like maybe we don't know that we will need it then. God has called us to do great things in this generation. Your life and my life is no less significant than Joshua's. God has a great plan for 2014. The world is as goofy as can be, but it doesn't change anything about what God has planned and what he is going to do. It doesn't hinder him in any way. And the two great dangers are fear and dismay, becoming like everybody else in the world so that our eyes are not on what it is that he has planned. And we are emotionally and spiritually and mentally incapacitated to enter into that work. We're to be different. Strength and courage, and it all comes from God, but he's got an ample supply of it, is very, very attractive especially as it becomes rare and rare in the world in which we live. And God wants the world to see those characteristics in our life as he does the great things that he's going to do for his glory in this coming year. Through us as a church and every other church in this community that knows him and loves him and for us individually. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Mm-hmm. Father, we thank you this morning for your love for us. And that it really does cast out fear. Thank you that your love is perfect. We acknowledge that we have only come to understand that perfect love by degree. But we want to continue to grow in that. Thank you, Lord, for telling us in your word not to give in to dismay and to fear but to be strong and to be courageous, but then to give us the priceless, unchanging reasons why we can be. We pray for one another this morning, Lord, under your watchful eye in this place. We ask that you would use this time in your word to completely wash away all fear, and all dismay from our lives. We ask that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and with him, Lord, bring in a fresh supply of strength and of courage. We pray that you take us by the hand into 2014 and that you would bring honor and glory and praise to yourself through our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.